scripture reading today is Psalms 107, verses 1 through 22. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And gather in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to, to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness, and in the shadow of death, prisoners, afflictions, and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with the hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst the bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the iron, the bars of iron. Some were fools, though they their simple ways, and because of their iniquities suffered afflictions. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from his destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of the deeds in songs of joy. Thank you, Brendan, and uh, thank you, Michael, for that song. Um, I'm sure, uh, Michael, I'm sure you'll find out later that your song was just very fitting for what we're going to be dealing with today. and, and uh, and this passage as well that we just read is it goes right along with what we're going to be learning in our passage today. Um, let's uh, let's start out with a word of prayer as we come to the passage. We're going to be in John chapter four, uh, beginning in verse forty-three. Um, let's read the passage together, and then we uh, will spend some time in prayer, and then we'll move right into the message. You guys will stand with me as we read this passage. John chapter four. Beginning in verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own town, own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. 
The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them uh, the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come before your word. Lord, to come humbly before your word, to learn and, and learn, um, learn more about you as we study your word. God, I pray during this time that you would be glorified. Um, this is not about my own glory. Lord, uh, you know well of my feebleness uh, coming to your word. Uh, it's not about our own glory or our, our own selfish satisfaction. Lord, it is all about us worshiping you, who is the one who is the only one who truly deserves worship. In your name, amen. You guys can be seated. Often in sermons, when we come to a miracle that Jesus performs, especially healing miracles, we, we tend to take those and make them about us, Right? Like, Jesus can heal me, right? And that's, that's kind of what we focus on. Jesus has the power to heal you, and he absolutely does. However, I want to propose today that as we look at this text, which is the first time we've seen Jesus heal someone in John so far, that the healings are not about us. The healings are all about him and his glory. And we'll look at that today. Um, a couple of things we want to talk about just to start out with. We see, we'll see that these people, they're seeking a sign from Jesus. And before we go off and say, oh, that's all they wanted. They're, aren't they just, you know, they're, those guys are just weird and they, you know, we don't, we don't do that. How many times have we said, Lord, if you get me out of this situation, I'll do this. Lord, if you, if you, if you bring me out of this trial, I'm going to start going to church. If you bring me out of this situation, I'm going to fill in the blank. We'll see in this passage that that is not how we should approach God. Let me give you one story, and we'll, we'll, we'll start here. Um, Martin Luther, a couple weeks ago I mentioned that it was the 499th anniversary of the, of the Protestant Reformation. It was started by a man named Martin Luther on July 2nd of 1505. It's a long time ago. July 2nd of 1505, he was returning to, uh, to university. He was studying to be a lawyer at the time. He was uh, returning from university on horseback uh, after he had been home for a, for a while. And during that trip, there was a massive thunderstorm. Okay? So much so that there was even lightning that was striking near him. Right? This scared the living daylights out of him, as I'm sure it would you. In the middle of this, Luther, Luther dropped down in the middle of the snowstorm and said, Saint Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. Now, again, this goes back to a time when they would have would have uh, prayed to the saints, and in the in the religion that he was involved with, would have prayed to the saints. And he prays to Saint Anne and says, "Save me, and I will become a monk." Right. So this is, in fact, he gets saved from this. Right. He doesn't die in the middle of this thunderstorm, this really scary storm. So what does he do within the next fifteen days? Right. That's not long. Within the next 15 days, he quits going to law school, sells all of his books, against his father's wishes, joins a, joins a monastery as a monk. Drops everything and fulfills his promise. 
what we'll see at the end of this message is that 19 years later, some things that uh, Luther will do some things uh, and he'll, he'll make some decisions uh, that will eventually lead to him coming to Christ. He himself will tell you by the end of his life, he will say that becoming a monk had nothing to do with this. That in fact, he probably would have rather have not made that choice to become a monk. So what we, it's, it's what's interesting about this, and I'll, I'll step back here for just a second, this, this promise that he makes and fulfills ends up leading to his conversion, yet at the same time, he looks back at that and sees that as a foolish choice, right? So what we're going to end up, end up looking at today is that these kind of seeking for a sign, they don't lead itself to genuine faith. Seeking a sign, asking for God to do something does not lead to genuine faith. And this is what we're going to look at today. Now, before we enter into the content of our passage, we're going to look at where we've been. And in addition, I want to give you guys, uh, help you guys with uh, some common misunderstandings that you may get introduced to in your everyday life. Now, we are told as Christians that we ought to have an answer to those who have a, uh, who, an answer to those who would ask of a reason for the hope we have in us. And with uh, YouTube and such, it's really easy to find arguments against Christianity. It's really easy to find arguments against the Bible. So let me give you uh, one of those uh, dealing with this particular passage, uh, one attempt that scholars and authors and probably the History Channel have, have made to try to deconstruct Christianity and bring Christianity crumbling down and cause us to not trust our Bibles. So this, this may seem like a bit of an academic point. However, every one of us are going to face these kind of issues someday or another. We're going to be confronted with arguments like this, and we need to have something that we can know that we can, we can handle these, these questions with. So what I'd like to do is help us to understand our Bibles better and to better know that we can trust our Bibles. We don't have to be swayed by, by the kind of arguments that, that I'm going to bring forward. Or just say, I have to say that we just blindly trust the Bible, right? Somebody comes to you with an argument and say, well, I just trust it. Well, why do you trust it? I don't know, I just trust it, right? Let's give us some more meat to deal with in, in how we can trust our Bibles. Some authors and scholars will sometimes try to compare this passage to Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Um, in Matthew chapter 8, there is a, a soldier, he is a, a centurion, uh, so he's, a, he's an officer in, a, in, a, in an army, and he comes to Jesus asking for his servant to be healed, right? And this servant, uh, this, this, this is when Jesus was in Capernaum, and the servant wants to be, he, he wants his servant to be healed, and he tells Jesus, just say the word and I'll trust you, right? And then Jesus exhorts him for his faith and says, man, you have great faith. Now, if you look at that in this passage in John, there's a lot of similarities, this Roman, this official, this royal official that is talking to Jesus, excuse me, he, uh, his son is in Capernaum, right? So there's, there's some aspects where this is taking place, and what Jesus ends up doing is he heals him from a distance. Now, scholars would say, oh, see, this is the exact same story, and what you have here is Matthew tells it one way, Luke tells it another way, and they're conflicting stories. So the Bible disagrees with itself. Right? So the assumption is that these two must be the same story and they are in conflict with one another. So therefore, you cannot trust what the Gospels say about these events in Jesus' life. You can't trust them because they mix it up. Now, I may have already got you thinking and like, well, that is interesting. How do we deal with that? Right? Let me start here. 
This type of logic then brings us to distrust our Bibles. However, if we look again at the two passages, the differences should tell us more than the similarities do. Right? Jesus does a miracle from afar. The people are in Capernaum. It's a Roman official or a royal official. Okay, yes, there's lots of similarities, but there's lots of differences too. Right? The, the centurion is asking for his son to be healed and directly asks Jesus to heal him from afar. This royal official in John chapter 4 says, Jesus, come to Capernaum. And Jesus rebukes him for that, for, for his lack of faith, right? Whereas Jesus exhorts the centurion for his faith. So what conclusion should we come to here? The conclusion we should come to is that these are two different events, right? We don't have to believe this, this argument. This is, ah, oh, see, they're talking about the same thing. All the details are all messed up, so... They can't, you, can't, you can't trust the details. The simple solution is, what if it's talking about two things? Right? And there's all sorts of places where, where uh, in, the, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, that people try to say, oh, they're in conflict with, you know, with one another. They disagree with one another. One says Jesus said it this way. Another person said Jesus said it this way. Isn't it possible that Jesus said the same thing twice and said it a little bit differently each time? Right? I've preached the same sermon more than once. I didn't preach it the same way the first time that I did the second time, right? Jesus probably did the same thing. Then if you have the crucifixion, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every one of them, there's slight differences in how they describe the crucifixion. These are not inconsistencies. These are just different aspects that each bring out. They are not, they're not details that are with conflict with one another. There's not, Matthew doesn't say, and Jesus didn't really die on the cross. And then John says, and he died on the cross. Those would be conflicts. Those would be problems, right? So what we have here with the Gospels, we don't have to believe this argument style that tries to say that, oh, there's all this disagreement. We, we, can't, we can't believe it. So we can trust our Bibles, and there's, there's one way to help us with how we can know how we can trust the accuracy of our Bibles. So that's, a, again, that's a bit of, a, of an academic, more of a, of a thought-provoking, more of a help, you know, kind of a more of a, a apologetic or defending kind of a, a kind of a point. But I think it's important as we come to this passage that has these similarities with another passage that we can understand how we can defend our faith and how we can defend our belief in Scripture so that we don't end up on YouTube, right? <laughs> um, so... That being said, let's recap some themes as we come into John chapter 4, this, this passage here. Let's recap kind of where we've been and where this passage is going. Um, first of all, this is the end of Jesus' first ministry circuit. If you remember back in chapter 2, he started in Cana. He went down to Jerusalem, and now he's coming back to Cana. This is the first cycle of Jesus's ministry. So um, we ha- there's going to be, so John actually compares these two and the way he presents John chapter four, he brings up a lot of similar, similar ideas that are brought up in John chapter two. Again, this is, if you're a, if you're an, an, an author nerd or a book nerd, this is, this is the kind of things that get you going and you read a book, you're like, oh, he's bringing up the same themes again, right? This is what John's doing. He's a good author. Right? He's a good author who knows how to write this well and write and tr- present these narratives, these true stories, uh, in a way that, uh, that makes sense and helps us understand his readers. Now, uh, kind of uh, re- show how some of these themes are coming back up again. Look at verses uh, f- uh, 44 and 45. Um, Jesus makes this statement. He says that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
Right, so we're seeing here, this what looks like could be a contrast of ideas, right? You have these people who welcome Jesus, even though it's already saying Jesus is going to a place where he doesn't have honor because a prophet doesn't have honor in his own hometown. So these people appear to be welcoming him. Do we have any precedent to say that that welcoming might be suspicious? Do we have any, any precedent to that? You guys remember in John chapter 2, verse 23, Says we when uh, it says when now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. If you remember when we looked at John chapter two and looked at this section, Jesus saw in them a shallow faith, right? So when we see here in John chapter 4 that these Galileans just welcomed him, he can be suspicious. And in fact, Jesus will make it even clearer how he is suspicious of this. Um, so we have that theme kind of comes back up again. Look at verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day, he was, he was uh, at a wedding in Cana where he did what? Turned water into wine, right? It's all bringing back up. This is the same place. We're in the same areas. Um, so you kind of have these, these themes keep getting brought back up again that John is trying to show us. This is, we're going to, it's going to be kind of the same ideas here. We're going to be dealing with some of the same material. Uh, look at verse 54 in John chapter 4. It says, uh, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now, there's, I don't think, as far as I can recall, there's no other times where John numbers the, the miracles that take place. But here he does, and which he did in John chapter 2 and verse 11. He says that uh, now this is the first of his signs that Jesus did while he was in Canaan and Galilee. So this, these two passages have a lot in common with one another. So then we can, we can understand that there's going to be some similarities in how we deal with them. People seeking Jesus were people in, in chapter two were seeking Jesus for his miracle ministry, not as the Messiah. And then here again in John chapter four, we have people who are seeking Jesus just for the miracle ministry, not because of who he is as the Messiah. Further, we see in, in chapter two that Jesus presents the gospel to Jewish people. Remember, he had he had he, uh, in Cana. That's uh, kind of a geographical chart here. Galilee is up on the north side. Samaria is in the middle. And then Judea is in the bottom section, right? So the bottom section where Judea is, this is where this is mostly populated by Jewish people. The northern section in, in Galilee was also primarily populated by Jewish people. Samaria was where those half-breeds were, right? So these are kind of Gentile people. They're half Jewish, half uh, Assyrian or whatever other whatever other nationalities had been from when they were taken captive. So there's there's um, those kind of issues here as well. Jesus, when he presents the gospel to Jews in Judea and in Galilee, what he what we see in both of those places is that the people are suspicious or they don't believe in him as Messiah. They believe in him for his miracles or they don't really make a decision. However, we saw the last two weeks when he was in Samaria. What happened? They believed in him. So there's a contrast being brought here between the people. It's kind of, it, it functions in the narrative. It functions as a warning. Don't miss out on the blessing. Don't miss out on the Savior, right? Jews, the Jewish people, this, this audience is probably somewhat to Jewish people in his original writing. The Jewish people need to not be like these other people and miss out on the blessing. 
be like the Samaritans who are getting it, right? And so we're catching these themes, um, which again, this whole idea comes back to John chapter 1, verse 11, right? It says, he came into his own, and his own received him not, right? So Jesus went to his own people, and they continued to not receive him. So we have that theme kind of coming out over and over and over again. Here again, we see that the general populations of, of Jews here, have a, have a, they have a fake faith where only one person who may even be a Gentile ends up with genuine faith, right? So here, let's, let's then start diving back into the passage and, and with that as a background, because I think without understanding how these passages are all coming together in this circuit of Jesus' ministry, it's really hard to understand what's going on here. It can, it can lead us to tend to think of and focus on the miracle itself or focus on the people involved in the miracle, not focus on the Savior who's performing the miracle. So first of all, we're going to see that seeking signs does not lead to genuine faith. Look back here, beginning again in verse 43. After two days, he departed for Galilee. Remember, he had stayed with the Samaritans for two days in the paragraph before that. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no, no honor in his own hometown. Jesus was from Nazareth, which is in Galilee, in the northern section there. He's going back to his stomping grounds. Right? Further, he's going back to people with a Jewish background like he had. Right? He's going back to his people, going back to his stomping grounds. And what does it say here? Jesus is going to a place where he himself has said that a prophet does not have honor. Jesus is not seeking honor. He's not thinking, all right, well, where can I go that I'm going to get the best response, that people are going to love me the most? No, what he does instead is he goes to the people who need the gospel the most. Right? He does, just like we saw in the last chapter, he doesn't go around Samaria and avoid them. He goes right to the Samaritans, right to a woman who is living in sin, right to her and says, you need the gospel. And then the people there respond to him and he says, you need the gospel. Right? And again, he's going to a place where he's not going to find honor. He already knows he's not going to find honor there. Not the honor that he truly deserves. And, and, and he's, he's going there because they need the gospel and they need to understand the gospel. So then here when we see here uh, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they uh, too had gone to the feast. Here again we kind of see what's going on here. We see uh, this idea that we, we can kind of already, having looked at chapter 2 again, this welcoming that we see the Galileans having toward him is kind of suspicious. Right? This is, again, this is where John is getting really ironic here. Again, we remember we've seen John kind of brings up this irony. Like, oh, yeah, these people think that he's a great guy. Yep, we already know that. We already saw that, right? We've already seen that, these, that people here are having suspicious kind of faith. And we even, he even explains they welcomed him because they saw all that he had done. Right? What are they looking for? They're looking for a miracle. They want to see him do something great. You know, it'd be, this is why you go to a magic show, Right? We'll go to a magic show because I want to see him do that. I want to see him do that, right? And that this is what they want. They, they see this guy as some kind of miracle worker, and they want to see him do something cool. Continuing into verse 46, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, and when he had, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum uh, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him, he, so he left Capernaum, took a walk, which is about a 14-mile walk, and took a trip to go and visit, visit Jesus in Cana. 
and uh, to, wanted to uh, ask him to uh, heal his son. When the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So here we go. We have somebody approaching Jesus. And why does he want to see Jesus? What's his primary motivation? Is to see a miracle. He wants his son to be healed. Jesus, come down and see my son. Now again, is that wrong for him to want Jesus to heal his son? Not necessarily. But Jesus catches, what we'll see in the next section is that Jesus catches what his real motives are. He catches what everybody else's motives are. We'll look at that here in just a second. Um, but at this point, what we want to really point out is that seeking signs does not lead to this genuine faith. So pleading for a miracle will never produce genuine faith, not on its own. What happens when God does not fulfill your request? Does that mean that he's a fraud? You know, praying, God, save my mother from her cancer, and then she dies of cancer. Is God a fraud? When we are depending on a miracle, can you see how easy it is for us to put our conditions on God? And he then has to act in a way that is in accordance with our conditions. It is presumptuous. As we, as we see in this section, God does not act on our terms. We'll see that in the next verse, especially. It is, it is presumptuous of us to demand something from God if he wants to demand something for God in return and give him our faith instead. Like say, God, I'll believe in you. I'll trust you if you do whatever. That is presumptuous of us to even uh, assume that on God. The truth is, God does not need your faith. He doesn't need it. He's not sitting there and thinking, thinking, oh, I, I hope they believe in me. Oh, I hope that person, I'm going I'm to really, I'm going to have an identity crisis if that person doesn't believe in me, right? He doesn't need your faith. He doesn't need my faith. Does he want it? Yes. Does he desire it? Yes. Why? Because he deserves it. Amen. He doesn't need my faith. So for me to say, you know, God, I'll give you my part as long as you do your part. He probably sits there and goes, <laughs> that's funny because I really don't need that. Right? He doesn't need our faith. <clears throat> He's not dependent on you or me for his own glory. The salvation he offers us or any miracle or blessing that, we may, that may, he may bring our way is not a result of our empty promises or from his need to gain your approval. No, God acts toward us purely out of grace. We do, not, uh, we, we do nothing to deserve any gift from God. This is why seeking some kind of sign or miracle from God doesn't really produce faith. It cannot produce trust in God. Asking for a miracle, if God was even to come through with that, it doesn't produce faith. Have you ever been there, been one of those people that says, God, if you get me out of this situation, I'll do this. And then he does come through, and what happens to that promise? Right? Maybe you're like Luther, in 15 days and you're done, you're in. Right? You're in fulfilling your promise. But maybe you're like, more like me, and say, and it happens and comes and goes and you forget about it. And you continue on your way, never fulfilling your promise. Right? I've done that where, God, you know, if, if, you, if you help me through this situation, I'm going to read my Bible every day for the rest of my life. And then what happens when you miss a day? 
right? Empty promises. We have these empty promises, and God is not dependent on that. Thankfully, he is not dependent on that because I would never have any favor from God of any kind or ever have blessings because I've broken so many promises to our Lord. We do nothing to deserve any gift from him. Genuine faith comes from resting in the, in the truths of God's word. That's where real faith comes from, is resting in the truth of his word. Resting in the goodness that he has already shown. Just like Michael saying this morning, can you get an amen for the things that God has already done? Right? We can look back at how God has already worked for us. How God has already been faithful. And we can say, we can trust him. Because of what he's already done. He doesn't need to do this thing in order for me to trust him. We can already trust him. And further, we can also trust him because even, even if there's nothing good that you can see God has ever done for you, he has sent his son to die for your sins, and that is enough to show that he is faithful. That is enough. So seeking signs don't produce genuine faith. Secondly, we see that miracles take place on God's terms, not ours. If you remember back to chapter 2, we saw the same thing where Mary asked Jesus for a sign. He, she, she asked Jesus to turn the water into wine. And what did Jesus tell her? I'll do it, but not on your conditions. I'm doing this for my own sake, not for your sake, because I'm the Messiah and you're not. Right? And so we see the same thing here in, in this passage. This guy has asked Jesus... Uh, to come and heal his son. Verse 48 says, So Jesus said to him, Unless you, now this word you is in plural. So he's saying, Unless y'all. So it's not just to this one guy. He's saying to everybody sitting in the room, all these Galileans that are crowded around him, he said, Basically, this guy comes to him and asks him, He says, Unless you guys see a sign, you're not going to believe. You guys are depending on miracles for your faith, right? So he, he accuses this guy with everybody else of the same sin. Of the same of the same mistake. It says unless you see a, the, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him. Uh, the official said to him, "Sir, come down before my child dies." Jesus said to him, "Go, your son will li- will live." Jesus doesn't go. He does heal his son, as we'll see, but he doesn't go on this guy's terms. He heals his son on his own terms. So miracles take place on God's terms, not on ours. As we, as we look at these two passages, this, this miracle here, this healing miracle here, we'll, and the one we'll see next week when we get into John chapter 5, I'm reminded of, of a passage in Isaiah chapter 35. We'll probably read this in our scripture reading next week. But remember how we looked at uh, in the miracle he performed at Cana about the, there was this messianic time of plenty that was being inaugurated through this, through this miracle, represented by this overabundance of wine. Now here, there's another messianic prophecy that's also being fulfilled here. In, in Isaiah chapter 35, it talks about how God is going to be faithful to his people and what the Messiah is going to do. If you look at verse 5 in Isaiah chapter 35, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the, leap ma- the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And that's just some of the miracles, the miraculous things that is going to happen when Christ comes. And here we have Christ on his messianic mission. He is fulfilling this role as Messiah. Now again, he doesn't do this on this royal official's terms. This royal official says, come to my house, come and take care of him. And Jesus says, he's taken care of. Got it. 
What do we learn from that? What we learn from that is, is, is that, is, is, again, is that these miracles take place on his terms, not ours. As we looked at just, just earlier, for us to presume upon God that he must act in a certain way on our terms is incredibly presumptuous. It's, it's, it, it, it's not our place to decide how God functions and how he, how he performs his will. This is why scripture tells us to pray, thy will be done. When we pray, we ought not ask God to act on our terms, but on his terms. We can absolutely pray for healing. We believe that God's a great physician and that no disease is too big for God. We can absolutely pray for financial help. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and can bring money out of the mouth of a fish. Certainly, there's no financial problem too big for God. We can absolutely pray for restored relationships. God is a master at restoring relationships. The biggest broken relationship to ever take place is when our relationship with him was broken at the Garden of Eden. And he has restored that relationship and offered that that restoration. God provided a way for that relationship to be restored. Certainly no broken human relationship is beyond God's repair. However, and we must not miss this, None of these miracles will take place outside of his will. Amen. If God answers our prayers with a no or with wait, God certainly knows what is best for us. He has known what is best for us since he created mankind. We must rest in the fact that God will act in accordance with his will and that he desires us to be seeking for his will to be done at all times. We must not ask for miracles on our terms. If, we, if God performs a miracle, we should be giving him the glory, not giving our prayer the glory, right? He's the one who deserves the glory for all of it. No matter what, the, what it is, God's will be done. That's why we're taught to pray that. The prayer itself transforms our heart in the situation. Lord, heal my grandmother, but your will be done. Because if you don't do exactly how I want it to, to happen, I know that you're still faithful. I know that you're still, that you're still God and that you're still, you're, you're still uh, in charge. Third thing we see in this passage is that genuine faith is trusting in God's word. So Jesus has told this man, go and your, and your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So he says, okay, go and he will live. All right, I'm heading home. He started that 14-mile journey back home. Probably had to stop halfway because it's a 14-mile journey. And by foot, they didn't have cars. It wasn't like, yeah, go 20-minute drive and I'm there, right? No, this was a a a half-a-day journey. So he probably, uh, you know, again, this was in the middle of the day when he got to Jesus. And and here he is. uh, He probably had to stop on the way back. Now, look what happens. Um, As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So, again... Whatever happened, during the seven-mile trip, somebody else came and started meeting him. They met halfway. And it says that your son has begun, um, uh, so he asked them, uh, it says, uh, sorry, verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, which is about one o'clock in the afternoon. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. 
and he believed and all his household. Wow. Right, this guy trusted Jesus' words, your son will live. And so he heads home, trusting that Jesus has got it taken care of. Okay, he's not going to come. Let's go. And he's met halfway by one of his servants who says, he's healed. Now again, think about that too. This is long distance healing going on here. Who else but God could do that? I don't think even Benny Hinn could try to do that. Right? Oh, he tries. He tries. <laughs> right, but he, he at least thinks he needs to be there to touch the people, right? He, I mean, again, if he really could do what he could do, if he really was who he thought he was, couldn't he say, hey, that person's healed, wherever they are? But he can't. He, oh, my goodness. Put your hand on that television, right? So, again, we see here that Jesus is able because he is God. He can do that. Other prophets cannot do that. He shows here that he is God and, who, and, and he is the Messiah. We see how, how he responds in this. He has this, this belief that is not, is not grounded in Jesus doing a miracle. But it says here, it says he remembered that Jesus had said, your son will live. And that was that time. What did he trust in then? It was not the miracle that he trusted in. He trusted in Jesus' words. He trusted in the promises of Jesus. See how it's different between the faith of looking for a miracle and this faith that this guy has of trusting the words of Jesus, trusting the faithfulness of Jesus. Right? There's a shift in his mind, and he believes in all of his household. Right? What an awesome thing to have happen. Right? His faith now is no longer grounded in the miracle itself, but in the person who performed the miracle. His, his, his trust now is in the one who, who, uh, who is the one who is the healer. Real faith or real trust is trusting that God's word is true and depending on his faithfulness. He is faithful and we are not. He is worthy of our faith and trust. We can trust his word. Now let's go back to Luther. Right, Luther made this promise. I'll become a monk. Okay? And, and he, so he makes this promise, and then 19 years later, all right, 19 years later, or 14 years later, I apologize, 14 years later, he makes this statement. This is, this is directly from him. This is from his, from his writing. It says, Meanwhile, in that same year, 1519, I had begun interpreting the Psalms once again. I felt confident that I was now more experienced since I had dealt in university courses with St. Paul's letters to the Romans to the Galatians, and the letter of the Hebrews. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what, understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans, but thus far there had, there, had, <clears throat> there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter 1, the justice of God is revealed in it. I hated that word, justice of God, which by the use and custom of all my teachers... I had been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active justice, and they call it, as they call it, or in other words, the justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. But I, blameless monk that I was, felt that, that before God, I was a sinner, and with an extremely troubled conscience, I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love no, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. In silence, 
If I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and 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 through the gospel threaten us with his justice and his wrath? This is how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The justice of of God is revealed in it as it is written, the just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which a just person lives by the gift of God. That justice of God is revealed through that, um, that, is, that is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel, but it is a passive justice. In other words, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the whole of scripture in a different light. I ran through the scriptures from memory and found that other terms and analogous meanings, in other words, the work of God, that is what God works in us, the power of God by which God makes us powerful, the wisdom of God by which God makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, and the glory of God. I exalted this sweetest word of mine, the justice of God, with as much love as before as I had hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise, Afterward, I read Augustine's On On the Spirit in the Letter, in which I found what I had had not dared hope for. I discovered that he too interpreted the justice of God in a similar way, namely, as that with which God clothes us when he justifies us. Although Augustine had said it imperfectly and did not explain in detail how God imputes justice to all to us, still it pleased me that he taught the justice of God by which we are justified. Becoming a monk didn't save Luther. It was not until he understood the gospel. It's not until he understood God's word that he was really able to come to faith in Christ and have real, genuine faith in him. This miracle that took place in his life did not lead to genuine faith. It was God's word alone that brought him to genuine faith. And the same is true for us. Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. Maybe, maybe you're trusting and waiting for some kind of sign. My friend, the scriptures are clear. The sign is already there. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead to purchase your salvation. We are called to trust him for that gift. Maybe you're here today, um, you're a church member and you've, you've been here, and maybe you've... Uh, Maybe this is something that's new. Uh, maybe you've been in the same boat. You know, God, if you'll just fix this situation, I'll be more faithful to you. Let me tell you, God's already been faithful to us. What are we waiting for? Why are we waiting for a miracle to take place when God's already shown himself to be faithful? Maybe you're here today and, and you're, you're not a member here and you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, this is a place where, where I think God is, is, is going to bring me and where I can learn more about his word and I can, I can grow in my faith. 
may I uh, ask you today, if you, if, you, if you feel comfortable doing so, please come and talk to me. And we could, I'd love to t share with you how you can know, for sh how you can, how you can uh, know what it's like to be a member here, what that means to be a member here, and what that would look like. Um, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, also feel free to come and talk to me. I'd love to share with you how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with Jesus. Let me pray for us, Lord, uh, real quick. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to come into your house to learn your word. God, to see that miracles are not on our terms, that miracles are in fact on your terms. God, to see that uh, miracle-based faith is not going to save us. Lord, the only thing that's going to save us is trusting your word and trusting your faithfulness and your promises and trusting your son as our savior. Lord, may we... May we uh, not be like early Luther, trusting uh, a, a certain saving uh, event alone, a certain miraculous event. Lord, may we be like later Luther, who came to find your word so satisfying that he could do nothing but trust you. Praise in your name. Amen.